0: What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Well, after having spent the last couple of weeks recording from our respective homes, Luke Coppa and I were back in our beloved Blister headquarters at Elevation Hotel up here in Mount Crested Butte, to hold this conversation in person. Our primary order of business here was to have a debate about the kind of various pros and cons of a whole bunch of AT bindings on the market, including the new for next season Marker Duke PT, and the Shift binding, and the Daymaker Alpine adapters, and then we talk about all of these bindings versus the category of frame bindings, and then also what we think of these kind of heavier bindings, burlier bindings versus the category of tek bindings. And then from there, we actually attempt to do a lightning round and talk about four brand new or newly updated touring skis. And the primary thing we learned there is that Luke and I just really, really suck at lightning rounds. And then, just for good measure, we ended with a bit of a random review of the Tiger King, because... Of course, and why not? Now, just one thing to note here. I really truly want to insist that you go do one thing. You have got to promise me that you are going to go check out this week's episode of our Off the Couch podcast. This week I interview Dom D. Tommaso, who is an Australian free runner, and I think that Dom has to be regarded as very seriously, one of the best and most dynamic athletes in the world. Full stop. If this sounds like hyperbole to you, just go check out his Instagram page, which is at Dom Tomato, D-O-M, tomato. Then tell me I'm wrong. Dom is a Red Bull athlete, and he is a badass, and we are pretty sure that he is not human, and there is a reason why he has well over a million Instagram followers personally, if I could only save one Instagram page in the world, it would be Dom's. Actually, well, it would be Dom's or it would be Hall of Meat, which you also should check out if you never have. Anyway, Dom is amazing and he is also really good at talking and he has a fantastically interesting story. So go check out this week's Off the Couch episode with Dom D. Tommaso. But For now, if you want to hear Luke Kappa and me talk about new AT bindings and some new touring skis and Luke's atrocious mustache and our review of the Tiger King, listen to this first and then go check out Off the Couch. All right. With all that, let's get to it. Here we go. Well, Luke Kappa, it's me and you here in Blister HQ And you wanted me to make a point to let everyone out there know that we are currently practicing proper social distancing. One, you know, we just do what the health professionals tell us to do. But two, that mustache of yours, I'm not getting closer than six feet away. Just an update on Luke's mustache. It's really coming in. I'm about, I'd say, seven feet away, eight feet away right now. And I can definitely see it. He definitely looks like someone you'd like run into in a real real sketchy gas station at like 1:30 in the morning and you kind of quickly avert your gaze and just, you know, try to get up to the to the counter to buy your your soda or whatever you're doing and you just hope he doesn't start shooting up the place before you get out of there. That's kind of my review on Luke's current look. Actually,
1: wow, that was pretty harsh. I was just going to say it's a nice social distancing tool, but apparently now I look like someone you're fearful
0: of. Um, I am. Uh, smile. I'm taking a picture of Luke right now. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong, people. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. Um, anyway, um, Luke, how are you? Uh, doing well,
1: all things considered. Um As you just touched on, I very much look like someone who's been self-isolating for over a month now, but... I'd say, like, over a few years. I take that as a compliment, then. (laughs) Really? Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, Not doing a whole lot, but staying fairly sane. Um,
0: Yeah, that's
1: where my life's at right now.
0: (laughs) Um, I think the other thing, in addition to uh, people probably who were very curious about your mustache probably the other big question people have is how's your cooking life going oh it's flourishing yeah um
1: yeah well the important thing to keep in mind as I mentioned before is my baseline is meals with one ingredient or meals that require like one manufacturing process to have them ready uh So yeah, still eating a lot of pasta, but that usually requires at least two or three ingredients. So really stepping it up. Um, Today, I made a pound of linguine in the morning and finished probably more than half of it by about three o'clock. So yeah, that's Mm -hmm. my life.
0: (laughs) I think I may have told this, well, rather sad anecdote, maybe in the reviewing the reviewer episode, my episode of reviewing the reviewer. Like, I used to do the make, like, five to ten pounds of pasta once a week in grad school. <laughs> and then things just got so busy in the last decade, now I don't even make pasta. Yeah, that's where I was before. Um, oh, so this is a – so you went from not – you gave up on making pasta yeah, to now. Okay. Yeah,
1: I mean, you have to boil water, you have to put the pasta in, Uh that's pretty much it, but – um Yeah, also, I don't have a really big pot, so I can't really make more than a pound, pound and a half at a time, which is very limiting. Um, But, yeah, I have now at least put, (laughs) I guess you could call it effort, (laughs) into
0: my meals. Um, Most people would not call it effort, but, uh, yeah. At the end of this conversation, we're also... Another thing that I guess you and I have both done in this quarantine period is um, on your recommendation, we were actually on a skin track, and I think you were like, I think we were with Drew Kelly, and uh, you were like, you guys watch this Tiger King (laughs) documentary? Answer no, but um, apparently Luke's description was compelling enough on the skin track that I went and did watch the whole thing. So I think we're going to talk about that at the end. Um, And we, you know, so we won't spoil it if anybody hasn't uh, gotten there yet. But, uh, okay, otherwise, today, um, we are talking about some AT bindings and AT binding systems and touring skis. So I guess let's get into it. Let's start with just some of your preliminary impressions about the Marker Duke PT now that I think at least three of us have been spending time. We've actually been getting quite a bit of time on that binding, um, initial impressions. Yeah. I mean, like after looking at it, uh, after
1: retailer and reading about it beforehand, the complexity of the binding kind of threw me off, and I wasn't sure what to make of it. But the most notable takeaway I've had so far is just that it has been a fairly stress-free experience with the binding. Like, nothing's gone wrong. Nothing's been weird, um even when skinning on it in deep snow and in slushy refreeze cycles, I haven't had any issues getting that Alpine toe piece onto it. Um, Haven't had any any icing issues at all, actually, so far. And then on the down, I mean, so far it skis like a marker jester um, or a griffin. Like skis like a good Alpine binding, um, which is... I would say the very least that it should do, given how heavy it is and complex it is. But, I mean, it skis phenomenally well for uh, AT binding that you can skin up using pins. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've liked it so far. Probably, I would say, more than I would have expected to.
0: I think I either wrote this in a flash review on the site or something, but when I first saw it at Outdoor Retailer, I was immediately out. Just out. Didn't like the complexity of the toe piece. Basically, you pop off the toe piece when you are, you. well, you pop off what looks like would be if you just go look at a regular Alpine binding toe piece, effectively that pops off and now you just have a tech toe on the front. And I don't know, I just was like, especially coming from a shift where you don't have to remove something, I just was like, yep, I'm out actually using it though, it's a very, very solid feeling binding. So far, we have not experienced anything like play in the binding. There is a very solid positive connection, snap on, snap out and the rest. I like all those things. And then you know you I think said like it kind of it skis like a jester. like I would go a little further just to be clear like it is a jester it's not like it's almost or there's a perceptible difference i'd say there is zero perception just from you know having been on it a number of days now so again let's call this just a preliminary take cuz we are going to keep putting a lot more time on these and we've been a being a lot between the the duke pt and the the shift binding but Talk to me a little bit about where you currently stand on Duke PT versus Shift.
1: Yeah, so before, I mean, we're not going to make any conclusive statements now because we don't have nearly as much time on the Duke PT as the Shift. But with that said, my main questions right now are long-term durability as with any new product. And two, how it will hold up to really hard inbound skiing, which we won't really be able to do for a while. And three, if it does end up having any icing issues down the line, we haven't had any so far, but I feel like that's always going to be a worry when you're taking things off and putting things on, especially putting things on that are holding your boots onto a ski. Um, But... Um, With that said, one of the main benefits I've noticed with the Duke PT is that its AFD works um, just like most of the other marker sole ID AFDs. It slides along the ski basically rather than going up and down like the shift AFD. And as we have pointed out and many other people have pointed out that shift afd can be tricky to set up and it's important to set it up right. when everything's set up on the shift correctly it skis phenomenally well still super impressive but it seems like the duke BT could be a little less finicky when it comes to setting it up because i there is no way for the afd to just drop down it's on a threaded track and it only moves uh horizontally not up and down in terms of downhill performance i mean So far, they both ski like alpine bindings, which is great. Um, Uphill performance, the shift is definitely lighter. You don't have to remove pieces and put them back on. So right now, the shift seems like a better option for a touring binding, in my mind, because of that lightweight and quicker transitions. And personally, and maybe it's because we're constantly switching between skis and Maybe we occasionally forget to change the settings a little bit. Um, I'd be more inclined to ski the Duke PT inbounds, but that is, I mean, we haven't really skied it uh, going up lifts to get to the top yet. So that's a very preliminary take. But if I had to choose right now, like if I was doing like a 90-10 setup where 90% of the time it's going to be used inbounds, 10% is going to be touring I think I'd lean Duke PT, but, I mean, those three questions I mentioned at the beginning are, I think, pretty important. And, unfortunately, probably won't be able to make, like, super final calls very soon. But, yeah, I mean, so far, I think they're two really good bindings. And, like, if we time-traveled five years ago, we'd be like, holy crap, I'll take either of these. Like, they ski infinitely better than any full tech setup a
0: hundred percent yeah so
1: it is it's nice to like take a broader view and just think about like we're in the binding market we're pretty uh fortunate right now for
0: backcountry skiers fantastic point you raise and totally agree from where we were four or five years ago, let alone like six, seven, eight years ago type of thing. Like this, this is, uh, while everything else sucks about 2020, pretty much people who want to a very powerful binding, we certainly have more options than ever before. You just said, for example, that if you were doing the vast majority of your days inbounds, you might opt for the marker duke pt over the shift now let's talk about this a little bit first of all the weight of the duke pt when you've got the entire toe piece on the ski so you're in downhill mode that binding in downhill mode is 1382 grams whereas the shift whether it's uphill mode or downhill mode there's nothing you don't you don't pull anything off so the shift is what weight
1: Uh, Our pair with 110 millimeter brakes was about
0: 886 grams per ski. So we've got 886 on the shift versus the Duke in downhill mode, 1382. But when you're in uphill mode and you pop off kind of the the toe piece, throw that in your backpack, that binding is then at 1,073 grams on your feet when you're on the skin tract versus 886 for the shift. Okay. I really do think the the thing to think through is the fact that basically if people are going to be skiing in bounds with that Duke binding and they're thinking about like, I guess I'm going to go take a, a slack country or side country lap or something. Well, You have to be basically skiing with a backpack. I don't see anybody like just putting those toe pieces in a jacket or something.
1: Well, the other option is you can actually skin uphill with the toe pieces still on attached to the ski. You just flip them forward and they lock into place. And I've done that once now and... I mean, yeah, you have more weight on the ski, but I didn't experience any issues. Kick turns required a bit more kick to them because you've got more weight in front of your toes. Um, but yeah, that's an option. But then you're also dealing
0: with a heavier ski. It's like, well, if you're going si- doing a side country lap, we kind of hope you have a backpack anyway because where's your avi gear and the rest? And so I guess that's just something for people to keep in mind. If you are somehow like you are not skiing with a pack, by any means or you kind of don't want that option the shift might be maybe the more appealing option unless you do what you just suggested which is actually leave that toe it's kind of weird I mean
1: yeah yeah I I mean I didn't I didn't skin with it in deep snow that day but there's definitely snow packed onto the toe by by the time I got to the top and basically just whacked the ski pretty hard and clamped it down and that's the nice thing about the duke pt is you can feel there's a very distinct and solid engagement when you slam that alpine toe piece down like you know when it's in and when it's not um yeah for me i mean the toe pieces the alpine toe piece of the duke pt i would say is about the size of like a medium-sized apple kind of <laughs> um i'd
0: say a very big apple
1: yeah i it, it it's not shaped like an apple, so there's, it's not a great right. comparison. But like, you could fit it, you could put it in most jacket pockets, um, like hand warmer pockets. Um, it's not, it wouldn't be like comfortable or whatever. At all. Yeah, my, I mean, like, yeah, the space in the pack thing, uh, that's not something I'm too worried about. It's more the weight of it and the transitions um, are the main downsides to uphill travel. And for what it's worth, uh, the cast free tour system that we weighed, again, with 110 millimeter brakes, in uphill mode, that's another system where you can remove the alpine toe piece. In uphill mode, that weighed just under 1,000 grams per ski. So that one is a little bit lighter uh, on the uphill than the Duke PT. It's actually heavier on the downhill um, because pivot toe pieces are heavier. Um, But yeah, I mean... Yeah, space in my pack hasn't really come up, probably because I'm usually carrying a camera and a decent amount of gear, so I tend to carry a bigger backpack anyways, but mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, given my current setup where we aren't, you know, doing the side country or slack country laps out of the gates, it's like we are either skiing bounds or we're going touring, I think for that reason, if you forced me to choose a shift or a Duke PT right now, I would take the shift um, because I have uh, so many days on that binding over the last, I guess, three seasons. I would take the lighter binding. I think they, I have yet to notice a clear distinction in the downhill power or performance, or suspension between the two bindings. That said, I think some people have had issues with the shift. Some people, if you don't trust them, or you have misgivings or anything like that, and you don't mind going a bit heavier, I think that's the perfect candidate to go to a Duke PT. Mm -hmm. And then I also would say, I mean, I would take the heavier binding for that person uh, let's especially like a bigger aggressive skier who's like i'm just gonna get a shift or a duke pt that's the only binding i'm gonna have and use and i'm gonna go put a bunch of days hammering this binding in bounds and then maybe occasionally tour but maybe not tour like a lot of people um then i also think that duke pt makes a lot of sense
1: yeah, yeah, and some, one thing we haven't noted yet, um, the Duke PT 16 that we have goes up to a 16 DIN. Shift maxes out at 13, so that'll be an obvious uh, indicator for those people that are running their DINs at around 13 or above 13. That's an easy choice. Yep. Um, yeah, on that note, like... I think the biggest thing right now is like, yeah, we've put a ton of days in the shift and have had very few issues. Um, Cy Whitling and our video guy, Jared Farley, have also put in a lot of time on the cast system, much more so than the Duke PT, just because, I mean, it was released uh, or it's going to be released next year. Um, So with that said, and I've said this before, I think in our ski quivers, for me personally, I don't want any of those bindings for a dedicated touring setup. I just don't need the downhill performance of any of them, and I will happily take a lighter, a much lighter binding and one that has a high riser because I'm a wimp. <laughs> um, so I would I would opt for like a 3G Tecton or a marker kingpin for a dedicated touring setup. True 50-50 setups, I think that's going to be a tough call that I won't really be able to decide until next year when we actually able to push the Duke PT pretty hard right now. I'd probably just based on the time we spend on these bindings, I'd probably go cast for like that 90, 10 setup shift or Duke PT for 50, 50. Um, but we'll see.
0: Here's another question for you. We don't spend much time talking about frame bindings Mm -hmm. because I think we're all mostly kind of just opposed to them, but just for the record, you would take either a shift or a marker Duke PT over any frame binding that's ever come into existence in this world. A hundred percent. Me too.
1: Yeah. I think in like three or four years of our like blister outdoor retailer awards, the like the Sayonara award went to frame bindings way prematurely. (laughs) Like we had to keep including it over and over again next season <laughs> yeah i don't i mean i totally understand people that don't have boots with tech fittings that and we'll touch on a product yep. later that applies to that yep but if you have a boot that you'd like that fits your feet with tech fittings don't buy a frame binding unless you got it for free i guess
0: that's a great segue though because so we're out on frame bindings screw frame bindings if that's what you have you've got your reasons cool but they suck it's like if you only had like a shift and you didn't want to get into that for some reason, it's like this marker Duke PT is 100% the product that the person who is committed to their frame bindings go this way, full stop, unless you go this way. So we're going to talk about another interesting product, the Daymaker, right? What do you want to say about that? We've been talking about the Duke PT, the shift, f- frame bindings, now we'll go Daymaker,
1: yeah, so Daymakers, um, some of you probably saw, it. we posted a review of them a few weeks back. Um, their name is a very intentional play on words of uh, referencing the old Alpine Trekker adapters, which they earned the nickname Day Wreckers because they broke and failed constantly. Um, so the Daymakers are a very similar idea. It's a insert that you put into your regular alpine bindings and then you step into the insert with any boot and you can use them to walk uphill. And I've spent a lot of time in them now. Eric Friesen's used them a lot and you started using them um, the other day. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, I think my main takeaway is like, I came into that review having spent the past several seasons exclusively skidding uphill in bindings that had tech or pin toes, and I got very used to that, and I was like, Ugh. like, I mean, I, I didn't use Alpine Trekkers, but I did ski in frame bindings for a while, and the most surprising takeaway is that I like going uphill better in the Daymakers than any frame binding I've used. Um, yep. They... You can read more detail about this in our review and on their website, but basically they have a linkage design. It's not a single pivot point from the toe like every other touring binding on the market, whether it's a pin binding or a frame binding. Um, Instead, uh, they kind of relate it to like an elliptical machine, and I think that's a decent analogy. And the result is basically just a much more comfortable walking motion, in my opinion, versus any frame binding I've used, mostly because the pivot point on the Daymaker's is right around the ball of your foot whereas like I mean even tech bindings that pivot point is in front of your toes because it's on the inserts of your ski boot whereas on the daymakers like yeah it's the pivot point is basically under the ball of your foot and it's so much more just comfortable is the word I keep coming back to versus a frame binding where that pivot point is so far in front of your feet and it just creates a really awkward walking stride in my opinion so yeah, I was I was very happy with how they walked uphill. Um they our pair weighed in at about seven hundred and thirty-eight grams uh, per adapter, which is, I mean, heavier than most tech bindings themselves on the market. And then yeah. you have to account for the fact that you still have your Alpine bindings on your ski. So this is not a lightweight setup. But you do get to ski in your not even like a touring binding that skis like an alpine. You alpine binding, you ski in your alpine bindings. Um, and there's definitely like a bit of subjectivity there, but stepping into the bindings that you use to bash out laps in the resort all the time is just kind of comforting. Um, hell yeah, it is. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And my knees turns out love it. Mm -hmm. Um, which I'll talk about in a second, but yeah.
1: Yeah. So you get to ski in your alpine bindings. Um, and Eric and I's takeaway was basically that there are several different categories of people that should be checking out Daymakers. First off, um, I think the people that can't afford or don't want to buy another boot with that has tech fittings so yep. they could take advantage of a shift, a Duke PT, a cast system, those people make a ton of sense for the Daymaker system. Add on to the fact if you're not getting into the backcountry super often, like you're a eighty ten, a ninety ten person, another great option, or your tours tend to be short, or like you're you just go into the backcountry to build jumps yep. and you're gonna be boot packing most of the time anyway. All those people I think make sense for the daymakers. Also, it's just like this is a, probably a bit of a niche market, but when people are coming into town to visit and like like, I've got a friend who, like, he took his avi1 course a while ago, but he's never bought a setup because he couldn't get into it, and he's in town visiting. Like, I can just lend him the daymakers, and he can go use them. Like, that's super nice, too. But, yeah, I mean, I would definitely, not, just like with the shift and the duke and the cast system, I would definitely not pick him if all I did was go backcountry skiing. Like, you can go with a s- so much lighter setup for that. And they do take up a decent amount of space in the pack. Um, I think I related them to the size of a uh, phone from the 70s, <laughs> yeah. um, which I think is actually pretty a pretty good uh, comparison. So you need space in your pack. They're heavy. But overall, for what they are, I was pretty impressed. And I do think there, is, there are several uh, sort of mini markets for them.
0: I think for people who really are just on a budget... And you don't you you can't buy a second boot, right? So you just have your Alpine boot or whatever. I think it's a really good option, actually. The other day when I was skiing, I'm now granted I was I was touring on the new Vocal Katana 108, which is a ski that weighs like 2,365 grams a ski, I think. I definitely like Luke, when you and I started walking, I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> but, but was, but the day before, I think I had been on an actual touring ski with a marker kingpin. So I went, which, which in my opinion is a, it I was actually on the new forefront Raven, which we'll talk maybe a little bit about, but that Raven with the kingpin in my view for me, that's like an actual touring setup, Right. And so those first steps go into a very heavy Katana 108 with a Griffin with a Daymaker on top of it. Very heavy setup. But the definitely the thing I noticed is like I got used to it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't feel the whole way up like what the I just was definitely moving a bit slower. Mm-hmm. But, um, I could see, and this is what I told you kind of at the top, I was like, I could definitely see getting used to this. Mm -hmm. I do very much think with these touring setups, there's a whole lot to be said about just getting used to whatever system you use. That said, I'm still going to make an argument about knees in a minute, I think. But yeah, it's not this wildly elegant system, if that's your thing. But there's a functionality to it that, again, if you... For the scenarios that you've already laid out pretty well, I think they can make a lot of sense for a lot of different people. Mm. So one thing that to just try to provide a little more context and then we'll we'll be done with bindings, to try to help people. We've been talking about Duke PT, the cast system, Duke versus Shift, the Daymaker adapters. I guess to try to make this a bit clearer, I want to help people understand like Okay, you guys are talking about some like very heavy ways to walk uphill. So, like in terms of bang for your buck, or what am I really gaining by going to one of these systems? Let's just throw out there a really good AT binding. I have in mind in particular a Marker Kingpin. Like, why make that jump up? You know, because. As I've been cycling through, like Duke, Shift, Daymaker, and Griffin, and Kingpins, I've got some thoughts on this, but I'm curious how you would, you know... Because you hear a lot of people, right? We get these comments on the site that's like, you guys are dumb, why are you doing this? Most people should be just like in a Speed Radical 10, or, you know, a G3 Ion or something.
1: Yeah, for me, um, especially, like... I know we just mentioned like for backcountry touring, but you, I mean there are a lot of people out there that use their backcountry setups in the resort. Um, and in that scenario, one of the most important things to me is the fact that the shift, the Duke PT, the cast system, and a daymaker with an alpine binding all offer the certified release characteristics of a regular alpine binding tech bindings even the kingpin and the tekton which have alpine like heels but uh tech toes you don't get that uh i mean i mostly think of it as like peace of mind of a binding that you know is tested to release like your alpine bindings so that's a big factor for me and then the other thing is if i'm skiing powder or corn A kingpin or a tecton feels very similar to me um, versus a Duke PT, a shift or a cast or even an alpine binding. But when you get into more variable snow, firmer snow, there is still a difference. Um, The other day I was skiing with Drew Kelly. He was on the Duke PT. I was on a kingpin and I mean, he often skis Dinafit Radical 2s. And as soon as he stepped into the Duke PT, he's like this feels so much better. Drew is a very aggressive skier. <laughs> <Let's>, uh, he, <laughs> varies is not even the right word. Yeah, but yeah. Um, he just goes hard all the time. Is an X racer, and you can tell. So that didn't surprise me. The vast majority of the time in the backcountry, like I'm not skiing hard anyway. So that's where the different. That's why I choose a tecton or a kingpin for my dedicated backcountry setups but we were skiing some pretty awful snow and there were multiple times where I kind of got knocked back on the tails of my skis. And there is a distinct, like the toe piece connection on the Kingpin or a Tecton is not as for lack of a better word, solid feeling as the shift Duke cast, et cetera. Um, like I could feel a bit of play there. Cause there are like, you're the, toe pins and the inserts in your boots there is a bit of movement that goes on there and it's just not clamped down like in an alpine binding so yeah I I mean the release characteristics is the main thing for me and especially like the people that are considering these heavy free ride touring bindings like they're usually the people that are pushing it pretty hard and so like if I knew I was going to go out and hit a jump all day and Consequently, crash all day, I would definitely go with the Duke, a shift, a cast, um, because I want that more reliable release. Um, And while I've never injured myself on a tech binding, like it's pretty intuitive that something with, like, I mean, these bind, these heavier AT bindings use the same concept as an alpine toe piece, whereas a tech binding that's just little pins holding your toes in.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To me, you and I were out. Uh, a, a not long ago, and I was back in a kingpin for the first time. And I mean, you guys can go back and read my review of the kingpin. I think the I think my quote was like, "This is the first AT binding I don't hate." And so, props to that binding. Still, but man, my, like again, in funky snow, I totally agree with what you've said. But in funky snow, like I feel like that one it is not the same power transfer and and that you can get out of a regular alpine binding or duke or shift and in funky snow like just the kind of suspension and elasticity in the toe piece it's just not present and my knees were like not that psyched it's again that feeling of like think about riding a fully rigid mountain bike down a rocky path right there's no shock or fork on there to like absorb impact so it's like I felt that stuff just going straight into my knees and um, not the sweetest feeling now that said going uphill on a kingpin or a g3 ion or a zed or any tech binding that's lightweight pretty sweet so again, we're back into like, what are your priorities? And if you're the sort that's like starting your watch at the bottom of a skin track and timing yourself, this whole conversation is probably ridiculous to you. But if you're cool, like taking your time on the way up and you're not trying to, how did Jason Leventhal put it? Not trying to race people uphill or something. Yeah. <laughs> that's where I think you do get that elasticity, that suspension and a binding mm-hmm. that I miss Dearly, when I don't have it.
1: Yeah. And to take that analogy one step further, I'd call like Alpine Bindings, Shift, Duke, Cast, they're all full suspension downhill bikes. And then the Tecton and the Kingpin are like XC bikes or a hardtail with a big fork on the front, except it's reversed. So you have good power transfer at your heel. And like, I mean, you don't really feel the suspension in the heel, I don't think, as much. But then you've got kind of the reverse, like a firm, no suspension front end. Um, so I think we need to make a the mullet bike of suspension. Like a, it has a <laughs> rear shock and then a fully rigid, rigid fork. fork. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then all the other tech bindings are like carbon fiber hardtails. Yes. <laughs> just transmit
0: every Everything. single thing directly into your bones. This is great. We had actually, before we started this conversation, we, you know, you may recall in a recent Gear 30 episode, we were talking about farm animal analogies, uh, for AT boots. And I told Luke, we should probably make this a recurring segment on Gear 30, like bad analogies for stuff. I, I And we didn't really come up with one. I think we're both pretty (laughs) tired. But um, I like this, that you're bringing in the mountain bike. I guess I started it, but I'm still giving you credit. You're right. So a kingpin is a mountain bike with a shock on it, but a rigid fork. And then tech bindings are just rigid mountain bikes. And if you're into that sort of thing, this is is very helpful. Yeah.
1: I will say that like... I am perfectly happy to ski a lightweight full pin tech binding in power corn. I
0: agree. I agree. Yeah.
1: And like, there's still a very noticeable difference in power transfer. Like you have play between those tech fittings and the pins, but yeah, like for skiing pow, skiing corn, any sort of soft forgiving snow, totally fine dealing with that. Um, but yeah, as soon as I run into, as soon as I run into any sastrugi or refrozen stuff or ice, I can just feel, like, my skeleton falling apart. Yep. Um, and, I mean, that's the whole thing about backcountry touring is, like, everyone has their own preferences. And yeah. for me, like, my summer ski setup is 100% different than my midwinter backcountry ski setup. Like, I'm much happier to go with the lighter binding, deal with poorer skiing performance in exchange for... Uh, easier days when that like when the approach involves like 15 miles round trip just to get to the snow. Yeah, like I don't care. like the skiing's gonna be terrible anyways. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's all about priorities, but um.
0: glad you said that. and yeah, for sure. like we don't care what binding you ski in, except unless it's a frame binding, then you shouldn't. There are phenomenal reasons to ski lightweight bindings and we're going to be skiing some of them soon and we're going to test them i just i i still feel like there's a lot of confusion from people out there who are like where should i go on this really broad continuum of bindings now we've got incredibly good lightweight bindings and incredibly good heavy bindings but people, I think, just kind of need to get clear about where am I actually going? What am I doing? And like, listen, this story would change if it was like, if if the ski tours that we were doing were more like four-hour approaches, five-hour approaches, and you're with a fast group, and that's kind of your crew that you're always going out with, my story would change on this pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, so again, if if before anybody starts accusing us of getting too dogmatic, we're really not, but what we're trying to do is just drive home, like think through how are you actually touring, what is your budget, you know, what are you into, that kind of thing. And so hopefully we've done that. What we're going to do is see if we can actually do this, uh, kind of go speed round on a couple of touring skis that we wanted to talk about. What should we say? How long do we get to talk about these four skis we want to talk about? 60 seconds, 90 seconds, two minutes max. You pick. Two minutes each. (laughs) The clock has started. What do you want to talk about first?
1: Uh, First one, um, the J-Ski Slacker. Um, (laughs) uh, Earlier this winter, you had Jason Leventhal on, and a bunch of people asked him when J-Ski's was going to make a touring ski, and he basically discussed how he hates touring (laughs) and walking (laughs) Uh, yeah and like i agree jason like i hate walking um (laughs) but i do love skiing um but anyways they came out the slacker it's a 110 millimeters underfoot ski that uses the lightest construction of any of the skis in their line Typically, J-skis have been pretty heavy, mostly because they use a almost full maple core. Um, Maple's a heavy wood. So the Slacker uses mostly Aspen with maple uh, right next to the edges. It's not like a full carbon ski, still fiberglass laminate with carbon stringers, still their regular thick base and edges. So should be a pretty durable build, I bet, especially compared to much lighter touring skis. It's not a particularly light touring ski, our pair is coming in at an average weight of around 2050 grams per ski for the 188 centimeter version.
0: Which for the record is almost exactly the weight of like a Rossignol Soul 7. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So like a few years ago, we were kind of calling skis in that weight class, like 50-50 skis. And I think like for true 50-50 use, that is a pretty good weight. And honestly, after my first few days on it like the first thing i thought i was like i really want to ski this while there's lifts running because i think it could be a really fun lightweight inbound ski um as a backcountry ski i mean we've been talking about all these various weights like i didn't notice a huge difference in me getting much more tired on that setup with a kingpin versus much lighter skis with lighter bindings um it has nice suspension uh and the really fun thing about it is it skis like Jay's other skis it's a playful easy intuitive option that I think most people will get along
0: with you almost made it under two minutes I gave him a silent 10 second countdown that you guys didn't really see but that's pretty good
1: yeah well I feel like I still didn't do it justice in two minutes is dumb <laughs> I know
0: um we just gotta keep it moving though you um, can read
1: my flash review for more on it <laughs>
0: Read Luke's flash review for more on it, and um, yeah, that's definitely a ski we're going to be spending quite a bit more time on. We do need to say something. We can't we can't talk really about it, but we can kind of talk about it. The top sheet for this ski.
1: Yeah, we can't show it yet. It comes out in August, along with all of Jay's other new skis and graphics. But it's so they're marketing the Slacker as the quote least nerdy touring ski on the market. That's not what we said. That's what Jay Ski said. So if you for some reason have a problem with some company thinking that Touring skis are nerdy, don't take it up with us. And also don't be so serious. Hey Luke, um
0: can I have time for a rant here? It's your podcast. That's true. <laughs> um yeah, to people out here, there there weren't many comments, no. but there were a couple comments. What so yeah, Jay skis called this the least nerdy touring ski out there. And apparently some people, this hurt their feelings. And to those people, holy shit. Like, you have the softest life. If this is the thing that's triggering you now, like, you really need to take stock about, like, the fact that you have no real problems. And so, get a sense of humor and chill? Yeah. Or toughen up or maybe your parents should have spanked you when you were growing up, but like what what? Being soft and being sensitive, those shouldn't be the same thing. And it was a joke and it's funny.
1: Yeah, I could I could see like if someone th- wasn't familiar with Jay skis as a brand or Jason as a person and a brand himself. Like I could see why they would think that's really weird that some companies making a touring ski and making fun of people that use touring skis, um, but they like Jason <laughs> Let, is known for his very lighthearted okay. approach to Here's, skiing.
0: Okay, let's turn this into a conversation then about insecurity, because I think all like if some let's say like. Volay or Dinafit came out. This by the way is a great marketing idea I'm about to give to Volay and Dinafit. Let's say they said we're coming out with an inbound ski for lazy fat people. And then <laughs> the marketing was like for lazy fat people who refuse to like earn their turns. I think that'd be hilarious. Yeah. You know what I wouldn't do would be like how dare you Dinafit? Like it's like if you love something Like, just be confident in your love. Feel good about the fact that you love something. And if somebody else doesn't, don't get triggered. Either laugh or just move on. But to take the time to leave a comment about it, my God. Yeah. Y'all are soft. Is this like, (laughs) it's got to be some 20-something. This has got to be some younger. (laughs) Oh, I highly doubt it. Really? No
1: 20-year-old cares enough about touring to get offended about someone calling it nerdy.
0: By the way, don't you think this is a great marketing idea for Volet and oh, yeah. Dinafit the like for lazy, fat people? Who, yeah, they should 100% do that. You guys can have that one for free, and we will, we will promote that advertisement for you, um, even though we don't ever promote advertisements. Yeah. So somebody should run with that one. All right. Well, that was a good two minutes. Don't be so sensitive, people. Just don't be so sensitive. It's fine. The world is fine. Um, Well, not really, but... (laughs) Oh, no. The world is terrible. That's right. The world is terrible and everything is falling to pieces. You should be more worried about that sort of thing, not Jay making fun of touring skis or people that tour.
1: And the top sheet will definitely, if you're mad about the, yeah. if the you description, you're not going to like the top no, sheet.
0: No, <laughs> But so, everyone
1: else who liked the funny description will love the top yeah. sheet.
0: <clears throat> Those people who were triggered should probably just get off social media before, before they accidentally come across this graphic. So anyway, I feel like that was time well spent.
1: Yeah. Uh, speaking about millennials and snowflakes and sensitivity... Um, to talk about a ski that has an avocado on its top sheet. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I don't really care about any of that stuff I just said. But <laughs> talking about the Sego Condor 108, I think it was two seasons ago. I skied their Condor Ti, which had a very similar shape, similar weight too. But this seat, this past season, they tweaked both the rocker profile and the construction. And my quick takeaway is that. It doesn't give up anything I liked about the old Condor TI, but it is now now a more versatile and easy to recommend ski. Quick highlights with this ski. We have the 187 centimeter version. It's coming in around 1920 grams per ski. So not super light, a bit lighter than that slacker, but definitely on the heavier end for touring skis. Has a pretty long radius, I believe 27 meters for that 187 centimeter length, but they gave it more rocker. They didn't make it way stiffer. The weight is about the same as the old version. Still has, I think, really nice suspension for how light it is. And I think in part because of that long radius, feels comfortable making big turns. But with that increased rocker and it's still a pretty tapered ski, definitely more fun at slow speeds than the previous version. The previous version was a lot of work, especially in deep snow at slow speeds. This one planes up easier. Is easier to pivot. Like I skied it on a day when we were skiing about like a foot and a half of pow and moderately tight to pretty tight trees, no complaints, whereas like that old version, I would have been working pretty hard to turn that thing.
0: Keeping it moving. I want to talk about the updated forefront Raven, since you have like literally some for some reason not let me talk about this ski yet. So I have to find I have to pick my moments when I can defy Luke. And this is one of them. This is like Tiananmen Square, me, you know, standing in front of the tank.
1: Yeah, because that's
0: definitely I'm the Chinese government. (laughs) Yeah. 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 With a bad serial killer mustache. Yeah, Um, The new Raven. I was... um, These tweaks have happened to the Raven. It's been kind of an evolving thing. This isn't a brand new update, but we finally are getting on the current Raven. And, um, as many people know, the 184 centimeter Raven, pretty much my favorite touring ski. So I never like to hear that a ski is getting tweaked when it's like my favorite. Um, but I've spent a number of days on this ski now, the current Raven. Um, and it's good. That's my review. It's good. (laughs) Um, I know we're trying to go speed. So good news. I, sigh of relief i still really like this ski and that's all i'm going to say about it for right now but like raven we don't have to put it into the like used to be good bin can i
1: add a bit of clarification
0: <sighs> all right you're bad at speed rounds
1: yeah well that's blisters bad at yeah, doing things that's quickly true. uh so yeah the, the raven's construction hasn't changed since the version you reviewed right. i think it was 16 17 or 17 18 almost But they did switch factories, and there was worry, discussion online, like, oh, something changed. But Forefront hadn't said anything changed, and looking at the rocker profiles of the two versions, they're similar. We'll discuss the minute differences in our first look. And then the main thing with this ski, you've been skiing is for the 2021 season, they're releasing a special edition of the Raven that is a collaboration with Pomica and Hoji. Um, And basically there's a cutout in the back of the ski that uh, is compatible with these skins that come with it, pre-cut skins, they're the race, pink race skins. And basically you can get away with, the idea is you can get away with a shorter, lighter, more packable skin, still get most of the grip. And they'll also be making a Raven, that does not have that uh, little cutout in it if you just want the regular version.
0: Yeah. I hear the Hoji Pomoka collab is called the Pahoji or the Hakoma.
1: (laughs) I feel like they might get into copyright issues on that second one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The, The pink, props to the pink skins. That's a good look. More skins should be pink. Last ski quickly vocal blaze we'll talk more about the blaze i i let's we'll go short on this one like i want more time on this ski but yeah
1: um blaze 106 new lightweight ski from vocal kind of replacing the 108 but the blaze 106 is significantly lighter um and that's what we have the not
0: kind of replacing the 108 like replacing the 108
1: it fills the same role but it's a very different ski
0: well, replacements of a thing can be different. Yeah.
1: Well, I thought I was going to keep this brief, but apparently, yeah, I'm just going to get interrupted the whole time. <laughs> um, yeah. It, our pair, we have the 186 centimeter version coming in a, somewhere between 1790 grams and 1785 grams. So, again, not super light, but very light for any ski you take inbounds. I didn't think I was going to like it. I was mad that the Duke PT came on that ski. Turns out it's a really good ski. I think it's got a minus 12 mount point and it didn't bother me so far. Had it on one of the deepest days of the year was totally fine. I think it has really nice suspension for how light it is. Skied it on some terrible snow, but yeah, overall so far key takeaways, intuitive, good for its weight, versatile.
0: Yeah. I think we were all a little bit like kind of suspicious of the minus 12 mount, but um, this is a kind of a subjective thing to say but like for being minus 12 it doesn't feel like a really imbalanced ski Mm -hmm. um so those are some initial thoughts on that but yeah like so far good ski i personally wouldn't be at all tempted to use it inbounds that would be like a dedicated touring ski for me and i i could I could be pretty psyched on that though. I would be curious about like mounting a little bit more forward on it.
1: Yeah. I honestly want to move the bindings like four centimeters forward, not because the ski is bad where it is, but just suits my style better. The only real time I noticed it, like I was feeling way back on the ski was in really tight kind of bumpy spots where I was making lots of quick turns. And like, if I did get back, it just felt like there was an unnecessary amount of ski in
0: front of me. Um,
1: but we'll see. Yeah.
0: Well, that ends the worst lightning round (laughs) in the history of lightning. I mean, it was
1: lightning compared to our binding
0: discussion. (laughs) That's true. It was blister style lightning (laughs) round. Yeah. It's like, it's like a fast turtle. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. Random review. Tiger King. So we were on our way up. I think we were just headed to like, this is a, I don't know, a few weeks ago, maybe. We were on a skin track. Luke throws out the comment to me and Drew. By the way, you guys seen this Tiger King thing? Neither Drew nor I had. Luke starts telling us about it. So this is the part where you should just end the podcast if you have not watched this yet. Because I think... I'm solidly in the like, yep, you should watch this camp. Luke, you're there too? Yeah, okay. 100%. Um, so turn this off. We'll talk to you later. Come back after you watch it if you haven't yet. I'll let you open though, Luke. This was your suggestion. What are your thoughts on The Tiger King?
1: It's, it's the most entertaining television or movie I've seen in 2020. <laughs> and like, granted, I haven't seen a bunch of amazing films or TV shows, but like, just at every turn they, and it's all, it's a 100% true, well, like, it's a documentary. So, like, it's not like they're making this up as they go. Like, every scene, I'm like, (laughs) it can't get any weirder, or these people can't get any stupider, and they just prove me wrong every time, and, like, you seriously could not write this plot if you were trying to make an no. entertaining fictional story about <laughs> individuals who own big cats and their weird weirdly passionate squabbles with each other yeah and murder and death and drug use and conspiracy murder conspiracies like it has everything <laughs>
0: if this if this was just if this was just a like a fiction bit of fiction that came out I think it would be panned as the dumbest, least realistic, you know, series ever to come out. I mean, so in fact, like, I think I'd gotten into the maybe second or third episode and I remember texting you this. I was like, I'm going to get to the end of this. And the last thing that they're going to show on the screen is just a black and white screen with letters that are like, dear stupid viewer. Who just watched all these episodes? Of course, this is fake. Yeah. And the fact that you thought this was real proves this is a litmus test and you failed and you're an idiot. Yeah. But as you like keep learning more about these
1: characters, you're like, yeah, all of a sudden I see why he would do that or (laughs) I see why she would respond like that because they're unstable people. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, in a time where a lot of us are unsure and, like, not sure what we're going to do with our lives, like, if you want to feel good about yourself yeah. and
0: where you're at, watch this show. Okay, couple questions. Did you have a favorite character?
1: Yeah, it was either the campaign manager or the
0: person who got
1: their arm ripped off. <laughs> um,
0: Campaign manager was my answer. Did you yeah. steal my answer or would you... No, we,
1: we discussed this before. We we're uh, Almost everyone I've talked to is on the same page in that regard. Oh, they are? Okay. This is like the only sane person on the show.
0: Yeah. Campaign manager, I feel like, is our proxy. Like, of all of the insanity going on, and you're right, like the person that got the arm eaten by off by the tiger yeah. or whatever. I, now that I think of it, most of the employees at Joe's place I actually liked. Um I, but just like by the time the campaign manager showed up, it was just like I just felt like I was like watching car crash after car crash and it was like he was the first person that walked into the show and was like, "Yo, this is car crash after car crash." Yeah. And you're like, "I know, right?" <laughs> yeah. Thank you for like somebody
1: here. Yeah, I think his first line was, "I was Joe Exotic's campaign manager,
0: and it was the worst experience of my life." <laughs> <laughs> like, finally. <laughs> yeah, um, a couple other questions. Um, yeah, I was I far and away campaign manager was my favorite character. Did Carol murder? her first husband.
1: I I mean <laughs> seeing as we're conjecturing about this on a gear podcast and I don't know anything about the actual investigation I have I guess I would just say I have very I have a very low opinion of her as a human being. Yeah. And it would not at all surprise me if it if evidence came out that she did murder her first or second husband whoever it was wasn't it the first i thought she might have i don't know there were a lot of husbands and wives there's a lot of there's a lot of husband (laughs) and wives yeah
0: (laughs) um you're right it actually may have been the second but how much money would you wager that she did yeah uh i'm not a betting person but uh, somewhere between 50 and a hundred dollars. I think I'd bet a yeah. thousand bucks. Yeah. That she, she, and the whole meat grinder conversation and then the sardine oil conversation. And the sardi- she did it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she did it. Um, I got a thousand bucks on that. Okay. Second question. Did Joe burn down the alligator kind of had where co- their film was stored? Yeah, where the film... The Alligator Stables... Yeah. Stables rally. Alligator Stables <laughs> slash Tied up to the film. post. Yeah.
1: Um, that one I'm much less confident about. I could see... Like, he made a lot of enemies for good reason. So I could see someone coming in and burning that down. But the fact that they only burned down the part with just alligators and film from their reality show is pretty suspicious I think he did it
0: yeah and that scene when he was like at his lawyer's office where the lawyer's like yo um ixnay on the you need to make that film go away nay yeah. <laughs> like he did it yeah. so I think he burned it down killed all the poor alligators um
1: yeah he didn't show a lot of remorse when they were filming him explaining the situation for their
0: yeah. their tv show yeah, yeah. um did you have like either a favorite scene or most surprising scene? Um one that stands out is just like
1: like a lot of it a lot of the stuff they do is it's funny, stupid. Um, but the scene for his when he married the guy after Travis, two months after Travis had died, invites Travis's mother um that that wedding, but also the funeral like the you could sub that in for a scene from the office, like first season of the office mm-hmm. when it was all just cringe material, yeah like that was so uncomfortable that that one was one of the more memorable ones for
0: sure, yeah <laughs> by the way, if you ever get married, I definitely want to sing at your wedding, no. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I need to start thinking about how to make this happen because now he's going to probably have security. Yeah. He stopped at the door. Okay. Um, For me, definitely the most surprising and shocking moment was poor Travis, man. When poor Travis was trying to make a point about how you can't fire this type of gun when the cartridge isn't in. It's a good lesson, you know it's like if i if we if I just had a time machine, it can be like, Hey, Travis, I got a different way to prove your point. Point the gun at the dirt
1: literally anywhere else
0: literally anywhere else, travis, any literally anywhere else, thankfully, not at the campaign manager, but there's only two places in the world of an infinite number of places you can point that gun to prove your point. It's a good lesson,
1: yeah, I mean, I was also like. Kind of, I think there's an argument that could be made that that was not an accident, which makes ah, it even more sad. Darker. Um, but on a lighter note, if you, you've you kept listening to us and you haven't watched it yet, or you want to rewatch it again, which I would also recommend, I think I've done it two and a half times now oh, wow. with other people, because um, other people hadn't seen it. Just Google Tiger King drinking game. Um, <laughs> whether you're looking for an activity for your Friday night, or Monday, or Wednesday, because days don't matter anymore, um, it's very entertaining. Can you tell us a little bit? Um, I mean, there are a lot of rules. Um, anytime anyone swears, oh man. <laughs> anytime anyone says Carol Baskin's full name, anytime those are all like single drinks. Um, Anytime a Joe Exotic song comes on, oh, I man. think you have to take a few. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime someone is uh, attacked by an animal, you have to. I think finish your beer. Um, anytime
0: somebody's doing an interview without a shirt on, oh
1: yeah, that actually is, is what really? I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, like anytime you see Carol riding around on her like leopard print bike, oh, man. And just cruising around, you have to. Um, <laughs> yeah, there. It's a
0: it's a very fun way to pass time for sure yeah. but uh dangerous also the the last thing i think i'm going to say is on our skin track it sounded like or no it was the next time we went touring me you and drew kelly i told you i'd watch i'd either watch some of the episodes or all of it drew was Drew's a little cerebral. I don't think Drew like rolls Tiger King style. So I think he was pretty out. He you had not sold him on your description. I did sell him though on it. And he and I think my point was and this is I guess we'll end with this. I really do think the documentary was exceptionally well done. You know, there's always a question of like any documentary like well, okay, We have footage. We're only getting to see like whatever footage they actually were able to capture. But I do think, I think the hard part is like, I think Drew was like, well, I don't want to watch this if it's like everyone is stupid and evil. Well, then there's nothing to learn. I actually do think the documentary makers did a fantastic job of the whole like show don't tell. And that's why I can, after watching the whole thing, still ask you, like, do you think so-and-so did this or that? Or how do you size up these people? And I think they did a good job of, like, still allowing us to process and think through, like, mm-hmm. what in the world? Yeah. So, Yeah. good job, documentary makers.
1: Yeah. And if people like Tiger King, it's not nearly as good, but... There's another Netflix documentary called Don't Fuck With Cats. Oh. Um but kind of similar in that it's a documentary and it involves a lot of really really dumb people um making s- really stupid decisions. It's not quite as lighthearted,
0: but it's darker than Tiger King. I mean, it's only have about you, murder. Have you watched the whole thing? <laughs> Tiger C- King? No. Don't Don't Fuck With Cats? Yeah. Okay, cuz yeah. I know of it. I I
1: yeah, I mean that one's like full on about murder. Um, murder. Yeah.
0: Whereas Does everyone in have Joe a exotic mustache, that's like just
1: that's just murder's just a the, <laughs> the appetizer, like the side dish. There's so much more. There's to a lot it. going on. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay, so in your opinion, don't fuck with cats. Not it's not as magnificent no, I mean, as Tiger mean Yeah, Tiger King.
1: King's in a league of its it own. It is in a league of yeah. its own. <laughs> you just I mean, that plot line is
0: Yeah. Just incredible. (laughs) Okay. So are you, should I, do I have to now watch? I don't really want to watch.
1: No, I'd say just like once you run out of other shows and movies to watch.
0: Okay. This has been helpful. I like that our, we were like, we're doing this in 30 minutes. We're going to get quick in and out. Never happens. It's almost an hour 15 in. We tried. (laughs) Um, We tried, but some, we all have our strengths and weaknesses and other people's strengths are speed rounds. And, um, that is not ours. Yeah. So, um, anyway, let us know, I guess your thoughts about Tiger King in the comments section. It actually, to this episode, it actually would be pretty great if a bunch of you just started saying like, Carol Baskins definitely murdered her husband or didn't. And that that's like basically what the comment section looked like, <laughs> um, and then a lot of people who have not listened to this or seen Tiger King would be like, what happened in this Gear 30 episode?
1: Yeah, I mean, that that conspiracy theory is, has been taking the internet by storm at this point. So I think most people have already gone through that state of confusion about why
0: people hate this woman named Carol Baskin so much. It would be amazing if she did end up somehow getting convicted. Because then the moral of the story would be two two big takeaways from Tiger King. Don't point the gun at your head to prove the point that you can't fire the gun if the cartridge isn't in the gun. The other lesson would be if you've murdered your husband and fed him to a tiger and then disposed with all the rest in a meat grinder or put him in a septic tank under a building, don't agree to do a documentary about your life. You've you've escaped. You're good. You're in the clear. Just head down.
1: Yeah. Specifically, don't talk about the specific tactics you would use to get a tiger to bite someone in (laughs) in said documentary
0: yeah that's a great point so those are things we've learned so thanks for the recommendation i guess um (laughs) yeah and uh to all of you out there hope you're doing well hope you're staying safe take good care of yourself and everybody else and we'll talk to you real soon bye-bye everybody Well, that's it for this edition of Gear 30. Thanks to Luke's mustache for not murdering me while we were stuck together with the door locked in Blister HQ. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And definitely don't forget to leave us a note in the comments section for this episode whether you think the crazy Tiger Queen lady murdered her husband. Other than that, just a reminder... We're still got the wheels turning on this telemark video that we're going to be working on. But remember, the next wave here is that when we get to 500 ratings of Gear 30 in Apple Podcasts, we automatically then set in motion our next blister crash course video, which is the snowblade video that we're going to be making. So We're already on our way to 500, but if you haven't done so already, and you do enjoy this show for some reason, go leave us that rating in Apple Podcasts. Let's get to 500, and then we'll be teleskiing and snowblading. Probably won't have time to do any more alpine ski reviews anymore, but hey, it's okay. Sometimes you got to switch it up. Anyway, thanks, everybody. As always, please take good care out there. Take good care of yourself and everybody else. We will talk to you again next week.